A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 243, The Battle of Myriokephalon. Back in episode 236, I covered the last interaction between the Romans and the Turks of Anatolia. It was the summer of 1160, and Manuel executed a fine pincer movement against the Sultan of Iconium. The emperor led troops onto the plateau from Byzantine territory, while a combined force of Latins and Armenians invaded from Cilicia. Surrounded and in serious danger, the sultan, Kilij Arslan II, sued for peace. Komnenos was only too pleased to grant it, welcoming the sultan to Constantinople for a royal visit. Peace between the two sides would hold for 15 years. You may also recall that the title I gave to episode 236 was Why Make Peace? My contention was that Komnenos should have continued to make life uncomfortable for the Turks. With the Balkans and Italy finally quiet, now was the time to begin gaining ground in Anatolia. Emmanuel felt differently. He would spend the next 15 years concerned with matters elsewhere, and seemed satisfied with the treaty he'd signed with the Sultan. One of the terms of this deal stated that should the Seljuks of Iconium capture certain cities from the Danish men's, then they would return them to Byzantium. As you may recall, the Turks of Iconium dominated the southern part of the plateau, the Danish men's the northeast. The Danish men's appeared to be ailing by 1160, and both the emperor and sultan anticipated a collapse in their authority. The collapse duly began with the death of their leader, Yagibasan, in 1164. Kilij Arslan sent his forces north and began to probe for weakness. The Danishmen's hung on for a few more years, but in 1169, while the Byzantines were off in Egypt, the Sultan made his breakthrough. Driving eastwards, he captured the great city of Caesarea and its surrounding fortresses. At this point, the Danishmen's no longer had one leader. Each of their cities was looking out for its own interests and the only thing saving them from being absorbed by Iconium was the protection of Nur al-Din. You remember Nur al-Din, 
the emir who controlled Aleppo, Mosul, Edessa, Damascus, the main enemy of the Crusader states, that guy. Nur al-Din's realm bordered Anatolia, and he had no interest in seeing a rival power rise there, so he took the remaining Danishman cities under his protection to ward off the Seljuks. Manuel seems to have hoped that this balance of power would hold while he was busy, but time ran out when Nur al-Din finally died in May 1174. Kilijarzlan wasted no time in descending on the remaining Danishman cities. This included Neo-Caesarea, Amasia, and Sebastea, cities which were stipulated to be returned to the Romans by the Treaty of 1161. As you might guess, the Sultan made no plans to hand the cities over. One of Nur al-Din's generals fled to Constantinople after this invasion, as did Kilijarzlan's brother, known to us as Shainshah. They told Manuel what was becoming obvious. The Seljuks of Iconium now controlled the entire plateau. There was no hiding the fact that this was a disaster for the Roman Empire. Keeping the plateau divided was the only way the Byzantines could hope to retake it. John Komnenos had shown the way in this regard, always making sure that one Turkic state was occupied while he attacked the other. Manuel's peace treaty had allowed Kilijarzlan a free hand, a decade and a half, in which to focus his energy on eliminating his rivals. The terms of the peace treaty, which demanded that these cities be handed back to the empire, was surely wishful thinking, just as Latin promises to hand back Antioch had been. Such agreements had no more value than giving the Romans a pretext for war when their enemies inevitably refused to honour them. If Manuel really needed a pretext, then he had one now. The emperor gathered his army and made preparations for war. The Vasilevs had three projects in mind for the year 1175. First was to refortify the entry points to the plateau. Second was to sponsor campaigns against Kilijarzlan, to see if his newly expanded realm might come apart. And we'll get to the third later. The first objective was achieved with relative ease. Manuel personally led forces to Dorylaeum, the site of the famous battle during the First Crusade, and began to rebuild its ruined fortress. Apparently the emperor helped carry stones on his back to encourage his men to work quickly. And then he led several sorties against the local Turks who tried to stop the Romans from erecting their castle. The imperial work crews then marched south to the other major entrance onto the plateau at the end of the Meander Valley. There they rebuilt the fortress of Suvleon. The two major roads towards Iconium were now open to imperial forces. Their vulnerable climb up onto the plateau would be shielded by the new fortifications. Unfortunately, the second objective of 1175 enjoyed no success. Manuel equipped two different forces to march into Seljuk territory and attempt to seize cities. Roman troops escorted Kilijarzlan's brother Shainshah towards Paphlagonia, but were quickly routed by the Sultan. Meanwhile, another force led by Michael Gavras, a native of Trebizond, made its way to Amasia, 
one of the eastern cities which Manawil had hoped to recover from the Danishmans. Some in Amasia were willing to welcome the emperor's men, but others, understandably, argued that any imperial occupation would invite the wrath of the Turks. In a debate that must have occurred dozens of times over the past century, the locals decided that it was better to make peace with the nomads rather than wait to be abandoned by the distant Romans. The third objective must also be regarded as something of a failure. Manuel wrote to the Pope to announce his intention to lead a crusade against the enemies of Christ. In this letter, he described the fortifications at Dorylaeum and made it clear that their main purpose was to protect pilgrims making their way across Anatolia to the Holy Land. He then asked the pontiff to spread the word, to ask the nobles of France to volunteer their services to the emperor. With their help, Manuel believed he could capture the Seljuk capital of Iconium, clearing the road between Nicaea and Cilicia. We know that the Pope passed on these intentions to his French cardinals, but we hear no more about it. Perhaps a trickle of Frankish knights made their way east to serve as mercenaries, but if Manuel really wanted sizable reinforcements, then he was to be disappointed. Many Latins remain sceptical of the Greeks. Whether they came or not, though, Manuel was determined to show them his power. The sack of Iconium would be the biggest Christian success story since the First Crusade. It would advertise to everyone that the real Roman emperor held God's favour and was worthy of their respect. Manuel was very serious about the optics of this campaign. Poems were written to celebrate the new fortifications on the plateau, in which their crusading nature was spelt out. This was a holy war of reconquest for which Manuel was willing to lay down his life. He had an expensive reliquary cross made, which would carry a fragment of the true cross into battle with him. The inscription on it announced that he could not bear to see free women made into the slaves of Muslims. It's doubtful Manuel was so moved, but he was determined for others to think so. Komnenos also repaired his Egyptian fleet and prepared it to sail again for Utremir. Rumour had it that a close retainer of Frederick Barbarossa was about to marry the heir to the kingdom of Jerusalem. This might allow the German emperor to take over as the major protector of the crusader states, another blow in the battle to establish which emperor of the Romans was really worthy of the title. Manuel was determined to win that battle, and so his land campaign against the Turks would be supplemented by a naval campaign against Egypt. Success in both spheres would speak louder than anything Barbarossa could accomplish. In the end, the fleet wouldn't set off for another year, but the vast sums of money Manuel was spending on these twin operations should tell you just how seriously the emperor was taking this venture. He was determined to prove to everyone that he was fully invested in the crusading ideal. Until I came to study Manuel's reign, I was ignorant of the true context of the Battle of Myriokephalon. I had always heard that it was a Byzantine attempt to retake Anatolia, 
but instead it turns out to be the latest chapter in Manuel's attempts to convince the Latins of his worthiness and the worthiness of his empire. In many ways, this campaign was an attempt to redeem the failure of the Second Crusade. Manuel had been badly stung by the criticism he'd received in the aftermath of that disaster. You'll recall that when the French and German armies had camped before his walls, Manuel had responded like a good Byzantine emperor. He did everything he could to move them away from his capital, prioritizing the safety of the empire over the well-being of these armed pilgrims. And though he offered them advice and food and money, he didn't risk his own neck to fight the Turks, and the Latins never forgave him for it, blaming him for their failure and suggesting that the Byzantines were working against them all along. Manuel correctly identified this sentiment as hugely dangerous for the future of the empire. Hence all his attempts to intervene in Italy, promote church union and invade Egypt. Here we come to the next scheme to win the respect of the Latin world. This time Manuel would lead a crusade himself, succeeding where the German emperor and the French king had failed. And when he succeeded, he would become a crusading hero and the undisputed protector of the Holy Land. The campaign against Iconium was set to be launched in spring 1176. Manuel called upon as many troops as he could muster. In addition to the cream of the Byzantine army, the emperor hired Cuman mercenaries from the Danube, a contingent of Latins from Antioch, and troops owed to him by treaty from both Hungary and Serbia. Had this campaign succeeded, Manuel would have looked like an imposing figure to all of Byzantium's neighbours. Kilij Aslan, getting wind of what was coming his way, sent multiple embassies to the Roman border asking for a new peace treaty. But the envoys were turned away. One of the problems with assembling a giant army is that delays become inevitable. The Serbian and Hungarian units arrived late, meaning the campaign couldn't begin in spring and would instead take place further into the summer when conditions on the plateau were less favourable. Estimates of the size of this army range from twenty-five to 40,000. All the sources agree that it was a huge force, and the fact that the Turks didn't attempt to engage it on the open road seems to confirm this. Manuel himself wrote a letter after the battle, claiming that the army was spread out across ten miles during its march. That many men and horses would require several thousand carts to supply it as it moved. I imagine I don't need to explain to you why this campaign was a bad idea. Manuel's father John had shown that the best way to fight the Turks was to wait until they were distracted and then to pick limited targets to hit. Engaging with them on the plateau was always a bad idea. The First Crusade had overwhelmed them with sheer force of numbers, but since then every Christian army that had attempted to take them on directly had been annihilated. By billing this as a crusade, Manuel limited his options. As simply Emperor of the Romans, he could fight small campaigns every summer until the conditions were right to achieve something big. But as the Christian Emperor, carrying a cross into battle and setting an example to the Latins, 
he could settle for nothing less than the destruction of Iconium. If he failed or turned back, he would be demonstrating his unworthiness and the lack of support he enjoyed from the god he claimed to represent. It's also worth saying that even if he had succeeded, what would that really achieve? Sacking Iconium would be a huge PR success, and yes, it might undermine Kilijarzlan's regime, but it would hardly be a decisive blow against the Turks. They held all of the plateau. If the Romans broke through at Iconium, the nomads would just scatter and wait for them to leave. The Turks were an opponent who bobbed and weaved, aiming one knockout blow at them. It was a foolish strategy. Manuel was risking everything on a battle that no one had asked him to fight, and it's hard to escape the feeling that he was trying to make up for the fact that his attempts to win the Latins over during the course of the last 15 years had been a complete failure. To be fair to Manuel, he did not march for Dorylaeum and the most direct route into Turkic territory. Instead, he stuck to the tried and tested Byzantine route onto the plateau, down the Meander Valley, and up to his new fort at Suvleon. This took him through Roman territory for the first third of the journey. The army stopped off at Konai, the last major city before the plateau, so that Manuel could enter the church of the Archangel Michael and pray. The emperor also attempted to divert his enemy's attention by dispatching another force east. This small army was led by Manuel's nephew, Andronicus Vatatzes. His goal was to stir up the Danishmens to rebel against their new masters. So the giant Christian army left Konai and followed the river up onto the plateau. There was no sign of the Turks, so they made their way northeast towards Antioch in Pisidia. This was the same town the First Crusade had travelled to, where the road turns southeast towards Iconium. Though the Sultan's men remained invisible, their presence was soon felt. Along the route ahead of them, for nearly a hundred miles, the nomads had prepared the ground. The fields were picked clean, the seasonal fodder had all been taken, and the wells were poisoned or destroyed. As a result... Within a few days, the army began running low on supplies, and dysentery spread through the camp. Kilijarzlan was playing for time. The longer it took the Romans to reach him, the more men he could gather from his new eastern conquests. His scouts had been watching the enemy from day one, and the Christian army being so big and so slow was easy to track. It was also easy to predict the routes they were taking across the plateau, since any change of direction would take hours to be communicated back down the ten-mile line of humanity. The Romans were headed straight towards Iconium, which was shielded on its western side by mountains. This left the Christians with two paths they could choose to reach the city. The quickest route would take them directly through the mountains. There was a 15-mile-long pass through the hills known as Zibrits. It was a winding route with a narrow entrance and exit. This made the pass an ideal ambush site, and the Romans must have known that the Turks would be waiting for them there. The alternative was a much longer road with its own challenges, but one which would avoid the narrow pass. The debate already taking place in the Emperor's tent each night must have centred on the supply situation. The longer road, though safer, might drain the army's supplies, 
and with the soldiers already showing signs of weariness and disillusionment, it could be argued that the direct route was the best chance of keeping the army on course to achieve its goal. As I'm sure you've guessed by now, Manuel chose to keep going straight towards Iconium. This may have been dictated by his flagging supplies, but it's worth bearing in mind that the Vasilevs had been here before. Back in 1146, in Manuel's first campaign as emperor, he had led the Roman army to Iconium and put it under siege. This was back in episode 230 of the podcast. After easily driving the Turks off, Manuel realised that he was in a tricky position. He had surrounded their capital, but he didn't have any siege weapons with him, nor the supplies necessary to settle in for a long stay. So he ordered the army to return to Roman territory. But turning your back on steppe archers is like running from a lion. The Turks gave chase and harassed the Romans all the way to the edge of the plateau. This included ambushes in the pass of Zibritz, which the Byzantines used to get home. Manuel himself knew then that these attacks were coming, and so he bravely led the rearguard personally. He managed to fight the nomads off back then, and so he may have been confident that he could do so again. Once his army was through the pass, he reasoned, they would be just 25 miles from Iconium. Even if they suffered some casualties, they would still have more than enough men to overwhelm its defences. It was a risk worth taking. As I said, the pass of Zibritz is about 15 miles in length and follows a winding path towards Iconium. To enter the pass, the army would have to travel through a defile, which was several miles long, meaning that as they marched into the pass, they would be unable to keep their regular formation. Units would have to stretch out, with fewer and fewer men able to stand shoulder to shoulder. The land was broken and rugged, making it difficult for horses and pack animals to negotiate. Once through the defile, the ground opens up into a narrow plain with steep mountains on one side and a gentler wooded slope on the other. If one was choosing an ambush site, it would be hard to pick a better one than the Pass of Zibritz. The day before they would pass through it, the Christian army camped in sight of the ruined Roman fortress of Myriokephalon, which meant a thousand peaks, named for the many mountains it nestled beside. We should note that it is at this moment that John Kinemus, our eyewitness, stops reporting. Actually, Kinemus kept writing, it's just that we've lost the remaining pages of his history. The text literally cuts out as Manuel sets off on campaign, which is irritating. We are left with the reports of non-Roman historians, court propaganda, and of course the history of Nikitas Coniates. Choniates, as you know, was writing from after the sack of Constantinople in 1204. He was therefore primed to see the Battle of Mediocephalon in a certain light, and we have to be careful with his testimony. But he is the only person who reports the specific details of what took place, so here we go. Choniates says that Manuel's senior commanders warned him about entering the pass, but that the emperor listened to the young men who wanted to fight. This feels like a cliché of hindsight, but there is something poignant about Coniates' phrasing. He says that the older men encouraged Manuel to negotiate with Kilijarslan rather than 
place all hopes on the die of battle. This very much echoes Byzantine strategic thinking, going all the way back to Maurice's Strategicon. Battle was a chancy affair. If the enemy was offering favourable terms, then take them. Why risk it all on the roll of a dice? But of course Manuel wasn't a Roman general in this moment. He was the leader of a crusade. He'd sent out the invitations. He carried a piece of the true cross with him. He couldn't back out now. The humiliation would be too great. Manuel, who'd sabotaged the Second Crusade, chickening out of his own pilgrimage. It was more likely this than the words of young men that convinced the emperor to proceed. On the morning of the 17th of September, the emperor ordered his army to enter the pass. Coniates complains that Manuel had not properly scouted the surrounding mountains, nor sent an advance force to dislodge any Turks stationed in the hills. If true, it would seem fairly inexcusable, but Manuel's tactics suggest that he knew an ambush was coming. He either hoped he could blast his way through it, or was expecting the major ambush site to be at the other end of the pass, as in the exit towards Iconium. This is where the attack had come, back in 1146. Sadly, that was not the case this time. The Sultan's forces had already occupied the heights around the entrance to Zibritz, and had reinforcements camped nearby. The Romans knew some troops were there, but seemed to have been ignorant about the true extent of the Turkic force. As the Christians filed into the pass, it's important to understand the order they marched in. There were essentially six different groups making up the Roman army, each with a mixture of infantry, cavalry, and archers. The vanguard led the way, followed by the central core of the Byzantine army. Behind them was the baggage train, with all the food, money, and siege equipment. Manuel himself was stationed with the baggage, surrounded by his imperial guards. Either side of this were the left and right wings, the right wing was comprised of mostly Latin soldiers and was commanded by Baldwin of Antioch, the brother of Manuel's wife, Maria. Finally, Andronicus Contostephanos, the emperor's most trusted general, led the rearguard. The vanguard entered the pass first and found Turkic soldiers lining the hills above them. Maintaining good order, the archers of the vanguard fired back at the enemy, and a quick charge up the hill drove them away. The Turks retreated to higher ground, and the vanguard continued their march. Military handbooks would have told them that they should have garrisoned these hills while the rest of the army passed by, but the vanguard did no such thing, so we must assume that they were ordered to keep moving quickly and not slow the progress of the rest of the army. With a force the size of Manuel's crusade, it might take five or six hours just to get through this opening defile. So it seems plausible that everyone had been told to just keep hustling along the pass rather than stop to take precautions. The core of the army were next. Though they were aware of the Turks high above them, they did not attempt to attack them. Coniates complains that they did not maintain a disciplined march either, rushing through the pass in a disorderly manner, perhaps confirming an order to this effect. 
As I said, this all took several hours, giving the Turks more than enough time to gather reinforcements and redeploy once the enemy's best troops had passed by. Next came the baggage train, guarded by the left and right wings, and at their rear, Manuel himself. This was obviously the most vulnerable part of the army, with non-combatants and pack animals who would take up most of the available space along the defile, reducing the army to a crawl. The left and right wings could no longer take up their allotted positions either, and had to huddle up in the pass alongside the wagons and carts. Having let the strongest part of the enemy pass by, the Turks chose this moment to launch their attack. Nicephorus Phocus would have been proud of their acumen. Arrows began to rain down on the baggage train, and first to feel its brunt was Baldwin and the men from Antioch. They tried to fire back, but arrows were hitting them from multiple directions, and their own missiles made little dent in those who occupied the higher positions. The pack animals they were meant to be defending were also targeted. With each poor beast slain, the road became further cluttered with debris as men, wagons, and animals fell on the road. Baldwin's troops lost their nerve some charging up the hill to fight the Turks, others abandoning their officers and making a run for it. Those who fought were wiped out, including Baldwin himself. The left wing of the army now arrived on the scene and attempted to get at the Turks, firing from above, but the Seljuks were increasingly confident and began to spill down the hill, drawn in by the sight of the bags of money, the army's pay, which now lay scattered on the road. Each army division was led by members of the imperial family, and they soon began dying. One of Manuel's nephews, John Ducas Komnenos, was killed in the fighting, as was John Cantacuzinos, cut down by a group of Turks after the men supporting him fled. Those who made a break for it were not guaranteed safety either. Gullies and streams ran along the paths, natural trip hazards that men tumbled into, and even those who kept their footing found that the Turks had laid further traps down the road. From the cliffs above or the trees lining one side, arrows would come flying out of nowhere, causing panic, and just as you thought you'd escape the chaos, more Turks might appear on the road in front of you. At this point, Manuel would have become aware of the disaster that was unfolding. He was at the rear of the baggage train that had now ground to a halt. The sounds of screaming men and animals was becoming louder, and word soon reached him that retreat was not an option. The Turks had sent a division of cavalry to the rear of the Byzantine line to prevent them from retracing their steps to the camp they'd left that morning. Fortunately for the Romans, Andronicus Contostephanos, commanding the rearguard, would eventually chase these nomads away, but Manuel, trapped in a slow-moving conveyor belt towards the carnage, did not know that. All he knew was that the only way he could travel now was forward, into a death trap that he had helped bait. Coniates is heavily critical of Manuel, but also presents him in heroic terms, so it's impossible to know how much truth there is in his account of what follows. It's a breathless description of everything the emperor went through, from realising what was happening until it was over. It's presented like a sort of one-take tracking shot. According to Coniates, at this point, the Turks on the front line displayed the severed head of Manuel's nephew, Andronicus Vertazzi's, proving that the mission to Danishman territory had failed. This news was communicated to Manuel, who was already in shock at what was unfolding. The emperor was overcome with grief and began to weep. 
Unable to give orders or energy to the troops around him, Komnenos seemed to be passively waiting for the enemy to overwhelm him. But, snapping out of it, he rallied the cavalry he had with him and charged the Turks who were now in the road blocking the path forward. Manuel was eventually unseated and had to fight hand to hand. Despite many bruises and over 30 arrows striking him, his armour held firm and his actions created enough of a gap in the line for men to climb their way over the carts and carcasses and get moving again. The Emperor's entourage swept him through the opening and on down the road, only to discover further ambushes waiting for them. Manuel tried to rest under a pear tree for a while and had to be dragged onwards by a common soldier. Komnenos was then surrounded by a group of Turks keen to capture him, but his instincts kicked in and he killed some of them so that he could again move on. Next he came to a river and tried to drink, only to realise that the water was full of blood and gore. The emperor cried out that he was glad he did not drink Christian blood, only for a passing soldier to respond that he'd been draining the blood of his subjects for years. Then the same setup and punchline happened when Manuel seized the Turks ripping open bags of money. The emperor urges the Romans around him to kill them and seize what is rightfully theirs, only for another mouthy soldier to retort that he should have paid them before the battle instead of asking them to fight for it now. Eventually, Manuel made it to the plain beyond the defile. The vanguard had found a defensible hill there and already constructed a passable military encampment. They had no idea of the true extent of the horror happening several miles behind them and rushing back to help would only choke the defile further, so the army closed ranks and waited for stragglers to reach them. We have to be careful of Coniates's hyperbole. He describes men buried in piles of corpses, their hands stretching out, begging to be released, which sounds a bit much. His tracking shot of Manuel's escape could also be complete fantasy. It seems likely that the heroic aspects come from Kinemus or a source like him, while the rhetorical put-downs issued by common soldiers sound more like Coniates grinding his axe. The reality is that Manuel did make it to safety, and most likely his entourage were with him all the way. The Turks couldn't get down into the defile and block his path, or they too would be swept into the dirt by the onrushing Romans. This chaos was exacerbated by a strong wind which apparently blew up in the afternoon, a virtual sandstorm which made it hard for either side to see what was happening. It may be that the Turks began to withdraw at this point. As the afternoon wore on, the rear guard under Andronicus Contostephanos made their way through the defile in strict formation and suffered few casualties. They arrived at the Roman camp just before nightfall. The victorious Turks now descended onto the plain and spent some of the night howling and sending pot shots into the enemy camp. They also began yelling to the Cuman mercenaries inside that they should abandon the Christians since they would all be slaughtered in the morning. Coniates claims that Manuel was going to run away at this point and abandon the army only to be rebuked yet again by a common soldier. Whether he thought about this or not, we'll never know, but the emperor stayed where he was. 
The next morning, the nomads began riding up to the camp and firing directly at the Romans. Manawil ordered different units out to chase them off. Then, much to his relief, Kilijarslan sent an ambassador to the camp, offering terms. The peace treaty now on the table was incredibly lenient given the emperor's position. All the sultan wanted in exchange for a truce was the payment of an indemnity and for the new forts at Dorylaeum and Suvleon to be pulled down. Otherwise, Manawil was free to go. The sultan also offered to sell the reliquary cross he now had in his possession back to the emperor, which must have been a kick in the teeth. So why was the sultan so quick to offer peace? Why didn't he finish off this shattered shadow of an army? The truth seems to be that the Romans were not in quite as bad a shape as Coniates would have you believe. As you just heard, the vanguard, the main body of the army, and the rearguard all made it through the pass without much loss of life. Only the divisions who were guarding the baggage train really took heavy casualties. And though that would be enough to shatter a normal army, this crusading force were of such a size that they could absorb those losses. The army Manuel had around him was still more than adequate to do serious damage. Now, of course, the army was extremely vulnerable because they still had to make it out of the pass, and much of their food and supplies had been lost, but they were still a threat. It was possible that they could break out of the mountains, find supplies, and ravage the sultan's territory. What had gone was the chance to take Iconium. The Turks had destroyed all the siege equipment the Romans had brought with them, and with so much army pay lost, it was doubtful that the men could be motivated to keep moving forward. It's unlikely that many of them had really bought into this campaign as a holy war. Rather than attempt to go in and finish off this wounded animal, the sultan realised that it was better to let them limp home. Better to make peace now and preserve the relatively cordial relations between the two sides, rather than risk turning this into a blood feud. Kilij Arslan knew the Byzantines well. Despite the claims that this was a crusade, the sultan knew better. The Byzantines just didn't mount campaigns like this very often. The two sides had just enjoyed 15 years of peace, after all. Let them go, and surely things will return to normal soon enough. The Romans went back the way they'd come, which was a grisly sight. Then, as they marched back across the plateau, the Turks attacked them. It wasn't the sultan. He had little control over the nomads once they were out of his sight. Many were angry that they hadn't been given full reign to steal and enslave this clearly defeated enemy. The Byzantines fought them off until they could safely reach the Meander Valley. Manuel went to the town of Philadelphia to recover from his injuries and handed out silver coins to all those who were wounded so that they too could seek medical attention. The emperor also wrote back to Constantinople with news of what had happened. He was honest enough to compare himself to Romanos Theogenes, the emperor captured by the Turks at the Battle of Manzikert, admitting that, like him, he had suffered a mauling at the hands of the nomads. But he went on to emphasize the key differences. He was coming home under his own steam, with his army by his side and a peace treaty in his hands. 
which he fibbed, and said, was signed by a trembling sultan beneath a Roman banner. So, how damaging was the Battle of Miriokephalon? It's difficult to estimate the casualties suffered. Baldwin's entire division seems to have been lost, which might have been 5,000 men. Most of the pack animal attendants were probably lost, so a couple of thousand more, and maybe another few thousand from the other divisions. As I said earlier, those were huge losses for most armies, but if 20 or even 30,000 made it home, then it won't have felt like a crippling defeat. As we'll talk about next week, when the Turks try to take advantage of the situation the following summer, the Romans will fight them off with relative ease. So the battle doesn't seem to have had an impact on the empire's regular troops. The real damage was political. Manuel's attempt to show the Latins that he was the real Roman emperor had utterly failed. This was undoubtedly the greatest of Manuel's follies, and something of a national humiliation. As we'll also talk about next week, the Pope and Frederick Barbarossa will conclude a peace treaty a year after Mirio Kefalon, and won't even mention Byzantium. There was no need to worry about Manuel anymore. His pretensions to be a leading player on the European scene had been destroyed. The Empire's allies, Hungary, Serbia, and Antioch, will also have looked askance at this defeat. They might not need to bow and scrape before Manuel for that much longer. Back in Byzantium, Manuel's legitimacy was beyond question at this point, but the news that so many of his relatives had died must have been a bitter personal blow, as well as a sign of God's disfavour. William of Tyre, the crusader historian, met Manuel a couple of years after this, and he claims that the emperor was never the same after this defeat, the traumatic experience robbing him of his joie de vivre. Which may be true, but we probably shouldn't put too much stock in what William says. He didn't know Manuel and was not in a position to judge. Komnenos will be back on campaign in Anatolia soon enough, the emperor was nearly 60, but still possessed enough energy to march with his men. Nor is he done attempting to improve Latin opinions of the empire. Doubtless, Miriokephalon was a shattering experience, but he didn't stay in pieces. He picked himself up and continued to be a diligent Vasilefs until the day he died. As far as famous battles go... Miriokephalon turns out to be one of the easiest to understand and to reconstruct. Manuel should never have entered that pass without properly scouting the terrain. But as the leader of a crusade, he clearly felt he couldn't turn back. And like most crusade leaders, the size of the army at his back caused such logistical problems that it felt easier to just plough forward rather than try to stop and reorganise. I'm sure we've all read historical summaries that compare this battle to the Battle of Manzikert from a century earlier. And while the two were large-scale defeats to the Turks, they otherwise have little in common. We tend to equate them because they both came before political collapses in Byzantium. But while Manzikert had a direct bearing on the civil wars which followed, 
I don't think Myriokephalon did. It certainly weakened Byzantium's standing in the world, but the chaos that followed Manuel's death doesn't seem to be directly connected to this defeat. Though we'll have to judge the details together as we move forwards toward 1204 AD. I should note, though, for those of you with really good memories, uh, that Romanos Theogenes was left high and dry at Manzikert when the commander of the rearguard abandoned him and fled for Constantinople. Manuel made no such mistake. He put his most competent general at the back, and Conto Stephanos prevented the Romans from being encircled. A much better comparison point for the Battle of Myriokephalon is the campaign it was designed to avenge, the Second Crusade. It would be ironic if it weren't so predictable that in trying to make good on the failures of Conrad and Louis, Manuel managed to repeat the mistakes of both men. Some of you won't have heard the bonus episode I produced on the Second Crusade, but like Conrad, Manuel marched across Anatolia in a predictable fashion, so predictable that Kilijarslan could wait for him just one day from his own capital, certain which way the Romans were going to march. And just like King Louis, Manuel allowed his army to become separated from one another and vulnerable, and the Turks pounced, in both cases targeting the baggage train, destroying the supplies which both armies needed to survive. For those of you who like to play What If?, I think I should pour even more cold water on Manuel's ambitions. Let's say the Romans had scouted the defile properly. Let's say they did make it to Iconium and took the city. What would that really have achieved? It would have been, as we discussed earlier, a great propaganda victory, and it might well have been the end for Kilij Arslan. But there's no guarantee that Iconium's control of the plateau would have been broken. Let's say the Turks do scatter and just absorb this disaster. Then what? Does Manuel leave a garrison behind? You might be thinking, well, yes, obviously. But would he? Roman-controlled Iconium would be about 200 miles from the nearest imperial city. Who was going to volunteer for that job? The plateau it sat on was still the domain of the Turks. What was to stop them from surrounding the city and retaking it? Was Manuel going to march back every summer and take other forts and concentrate on retaking Anatolia? He hadn't shown any inclination towards that goal in the past 20 years. What was different now? If you think I'm exaggerating, then let's fast forward 14 years into the future. Frederick Barbarossa, leading the forces of the Third Crusade, will capture Iconium. Learning from Manuel's mistakes... He will avoid the pass of Zibritz and take the city before moving on to Cilicia. And what happened? The Turks scattered, waited till the coast was clear, retook the city, and went back to dominating Anatolia. I think the real what-if is what might have happened if Manuel had spent 15 years patiently campaigning every summer, undermining the political structure of Iconium one campaign season at a time instead of going for one big roundhouse swing. Next time, we bring Manuel's long reign to a close. The busy emperor still has various tricks up his sleeve to get the Latins on side, 
and I know his treasury officials would like a word with him about the enormous expenses he's been racking up. After Manuel leaves us, I will be producing an episode just about his reign to talk more about this fascinating and complex figure and to answer any questions you have about him. So start sending them in to thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com or post them at the website or on social media. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.